Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Joao Valle de Almeida. Joao Valle de Almeida is the new European Union ambassador to the United Kingdom. And I think this is his very first podcast. So I'm very honored, Ambassador, that you've decided to do this with me as your first podcast expedition. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about Brexit because you're very much involved with that, the negotiations uh, going on at the very moment. But before that, I would like to ask you about your new job. You've been in the function for a few weeks now, a few months. And what is a, an EU ambassador to the UK doing all day? What is his job description? Were you given a blank sheet of paper by your bosses or were you given a very tight job specification? Well, uh, great to be with you again, Paul. Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to find my way in London, uh, yes. literally. <laughs> don't have a residence yet. And, uh, and it's been a, a, an extremely busy few weeks, then cut by, interrupted by, by the virus. But it's been great. First of all, it's a great honor to, to be able to represent the Union in, in London, in the United Kingdom as the first ambassador after after brexit uh, and it's quite a unique experience i i can tell you and we are with my team uh, building at uh, as we speak uh, you know my first line of um, priorities of course to work with our 27 european union member states ambassadors it's a great team we've had several meetings uh, and uh, they are experienced diplomats they know more about the uk than i do of course most of them and I learn a lot from them. So it's a daily job of keeping uh, the union united. That's our first rule. Secondly, to establish the right uh, links with the British authorities. But beyond that, with the, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, uh, the social partners, civil society, the media, the academia. So there's a lot to do. And I'm very excited by this uh, wonderful, uh, prestigious, difficult job, <laughs> but a exciting one. Okay, well, just to remind our listeners, you were also the very first EU ambassador per se under the Lisbon Treaty for the nerds out there to the United States in Washington. And there you played this also. You just talked about this coordination role. And uh, if memory serves me correct, at the very beginning, one or two ambassadors told me from large member states they didn't take too kindly to a, a brand new EU ambassador moving into town and, and holding coordination meetings. But I think I'm right in saying when it comes to the UK, EU member states ambassadors don't really coordinate formally not until now but maybe with you as ambassador is this a kind of new role that you see yourself uh, fulfilling I, th I think it was a new role in washington it is a new role in uk it was somehow also a, a, a relatively new role in, at the united nations and uh, my experience has been so far from almost 10 years in the us and now a few months in the uk an extremely pleasant one i think people see the the win-win of, of the of the post-Lisbon uh, situation. Uh, and I think it's even more obvious in delegations than maybe it is in, in, in Brussels, for that matter, uh, because it really makes a lot of sense. If you, can, if you can bring all the 27 together, if you can speak with one voice, pass the same message, but also collect all the information that all these investors through their own networks can bring to, to the group. And, uh, you know, it's, it's terribly, you know, rewarding to to work in a group like this and this is already my experience in uk do you see yourself as the or do people see you as the kind of go-to person as the kind of spokesman for the eu in the, in the uk i asked the question remember back in the days of ttip remember ttip and you were i know you always were maybe you still are a bigger a big fan of twitter and you were 
tweeting like mad about the negotiations or lack of progress or whatever on TTIP and often find, yourselves quoted, find yourself quoted more often in the media than the Trade Commission at the time. Do you still see that as part of your role? You're a former journalist, you're a former spokesman. Are you the, 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 the kind of the public face of the EU in the UK? I think a modern a modern days ambassador has to has to take a number of risks, you know, calculated risks, controlled risks. <laughs> uh, still, otherwise you don't count. Otherwise you don't exist in the in the public uh, in the public sphere. And of course, a modern days ambassador has to use uh, social media, has to use traditional media, has to has to be there. And uh, you know, provided you do it well and you reflect well the positions of, of the European Union and its member states, if you balance your language, if you're not aggressive, I think you can, you can contribute to a, better, to a better debate, to a more informed debate. And of course, while pursuing, of course, the values and the interests of the European Union. So that's what I tried to do in Washington, in New York. That's what I'm trying to do here in the, in the United Kingdom. And again, uh, terribly rewarding, terribly prestigious uh, and uh, <laughs> Challenging in the case of the UK for reasons you know better than anybody else. All right. Well, let's then move on to, to Brexit. Uh, just to reassure myself, uh, mind you, we're not going to try and get into some of the weeds and the nitty gritty of the, the current state of negotiation and go through uh, tariff schedules one by one. You'll be relieved to hear. But I would like to talk to you about some of the broader, the, what was the political context of the Brexit negotiations as they are now have been going up a pace. First of all, a, a rather obvious question, but a very important question. The impact on of having to use teleconferencing and virtual meetings for negotiations. I think I'm right in saying that in the round so far, only one uh, has taken place face to face. And the, the, the last two uh, have been virtual, the next two before the summer will be virtual. What kind of impact has that on the, on the quality and the, and, the, and the tone of the discussion between the two sides? I think I think I think first it's uh, it's quite a technical feature to have <laughs> two hundred and more people in the same in the same connection, but of course the downside of it is obvious. Uh, you don't have the the personal contact. You don't have the capacity to leave the room for ten minutes, half an hour, or a few hours, and have have, have a chat or have a drink or yeah. uh, in small groups, uh, uh, you know, speak out of the out of the control of uh, you know the respective teams. You know what I mean. So uh, it's a different environment. And I don't think, to be very frank, I don't think we can, we can make a deal if we continue to work on this basis for too many, uh, too many months. Uh, that's, uh, let's be realistic about it. But in the meantime, I must say the teams have done a wonderful job uh, on both sides uh, to make quite a lot of progress on the technical level, uh, to clarifying positions, identifying areas of divergence and convergence. All that has been done in spite of the the means in spite of the virtual uh, reality and this is a tribute i must and i want to praise both teams for the work they've done but now uh, you know we are reaching the limits of that kind of work that phase of presentation of positions clarification better understanding uh, is basically over now we move uh, we need to move up a gear and uh, that is difficult to do in in this uh, present uh, set up, but everybody is making uh, an extra effort to to achieve that. Okay, without being too technical, of course, alongside the the, the Brexit negotiations, even to call them, there is of course the discussion in the so-called Joint Committee on the implementation of the withdrawal agreement, which is also extremely important. And uh, to what extent do you see uh, a spillover between the two the two groups in terms of? especially on the Northern Ireland situation, the Northern Ireland protocol, uh, it's not like, a, I presume, they're not hermetically sealed, these two discussion groups. They are, they are communicating with each other. 
course, they are the result of the first phase of negotiations between the EU, the EU and the UK. You know, you have the, the withdrawal agreement implementation track and you have the future relationship track. Uh, they are separate in nature because they're doing different things, but in political terms, they are absolutely connected. And what happens in one influences the other. Uh, one of the issues in any negotiation, Paul, you know that from your vast uh, experience in Brussels, is uh, trust. Yeah. A, the most important commodity in the negotiating market. Yeah. And trust is built uh, uh, through, uh, you know, whatever you do in every platform in, you, in which you are working. So what, uh, what we do in the implementation of the Doral Agreement in terms of building trust of making sure that each side is 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 uh, is comfortable with what the other is doing is very important to uh, sort of uh, contribute to the, the the climate the atmosphere on the other track and vice and vice versa so they they are in fact politically linked on the withdrawal agreement our main concern we have two main concerns apart from others but one is the the, the citizens rights we have to make sure on our side, that our citizens in the UK, which are almost 4 million, uh, they are treated well, they have access to, their, to the exercise of their rights, and that's going quite well, I must say, but we have some concerns and we are discussing very, very thoroughly with the Home Office and the Foreign Office on all those issues. The other one is, of course, the, the UK citizens in, in, in EU member states, like, like you, Paul, uh, which is legitimate concern for the British authorities, but also for us, we want to make sure that all member states, uh, uh, you know, implement what they are supposed to, uh, to implement. So, uh, on that, uh, Northern Ireland is the, is the second main concern. Uh, it's a difficult issue, as we know from the first phase of negotiation, and we are looking forward to see uh, from the UK uh, the clear commitment on timetable, on, on, on action that needs to, to, to be taken to make sure that we are fully ready on the 1st of January, because, uh, mind you, even if we don't have an agreement, we still have to implement uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Right. Uh, even in a no-deal situation, right. we have that to do, and so for us it's a priority, but again, we are uh, waiting to see, and uh, there were some documents coming out of the UK government these days, so we're looking forward to, within the Joint Committee, which is not supposed to negotiate the protocol, but to implement the protocol. Uh, there is a specialized subcommittee there. And so work is, is ongoing, and, uh, uh, but it, it's, it's quite a high priority for us. Right. Well, you mentioned trust uh, as well. And of course, it's not just an abstract notion. It, it could be a political issue. I, I make the point because I did one of these podcasts pre, prior to lockdown with a guy called Midra Arban from the Eurasia Group, a well-respected analyst. And he said it was an, a major issue uh, in that the EU27, this is going back three months, say, did not trust the UK side. Is that still an issue, do you think, that the EU27 are suspicious of, of the UK's good intentions? I think each side needs evidence to confirm and to reassure about uh, the, each other, uh, the other side's commitment. I, I think this is valid for both sides. And, um, uh, you know, we could have identified a number of sources of mistrust uh, from our side regarding uh, our British friends. And, uh, and I'm glad to see that they are addressing some of that. For instance, the fact that uh, we produced a comprehensive draft legal test for, for uh, an ambitious agreement, while as the, 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 the UK only produced, uh, you know, they chose a piecemeal uh, approach, which they will, you know, produce a few, a, few, uh, a few draft legal texts. And on top of that, they asked us, you, you cannot share this with member states. 
and certainly not with the wider public. While we took a very transparent line, as you know, from the very beginning, Michel Varnier was very keen on the Commission and its member states. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's an, uh, an area where you don't build trust if you don't, if you don't, if you're not transparent, particularly regarding the member states. That's done now. So two months, two months after we published our draft, the British authorities, and we are very glad for that and happy for that, decided to publish their own text. So it's now on the table. That's, that was a source of some mistrust that I think they've taken away. Another one which was important is the fisheries uh, agreement. Trust is an indispensable pillar of any, uh, of any deal. We produced a, 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 a fisheries agreement uh, again two months ago. Uh, we were glad to see a fisheries text from the UK side uh, 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 at the time of the, of the last round. That's a good development as well. And the fact that we started discussing that is a good development. So again, addressing some of the issues of, of mistrust. I, I think the other one that is missing, and this is my call, our call on the UK now, is to address uh, the, other, the other area in which uh, uh, they have been sort of lagging behind, and that is uh, uh, we want them to engage and discuss uh, some of the core issues of this, of this deal. And one of them is the level playing field. The other one is the issue, uh, the issue of, of governance. There are a few issues, uh, important ones of principle in the area of law enforcement. Uh, so our call now on the UK is while welcoming what they did in terms of releasing tax, in terms of uh, making progress on the fisheries file, now we need to address some of the core issues of the negotiation, which uh, for the moment uh, and up to now, uh, uh, fundamentally the, the, the British side has refused to, to engage in. Well, you raise a number of issues there as well. Let's talk about fish briefly. Unless you're a fishing expert or from a fishing community, obviously where fishing is very, very important by definition, it is extraordinary, I think, to the, to the average outsider that the fish dossier dominates so much and is almost hijacking the discussions. To remind listeners, I think only eight member states are, are interested in the fish dossier from a coastal point of view. Uh, it's a tiny proportion of people, of member states' economies, and yet somehow it seems to have a kind of disproportionate uh, weight in the ongoing discussion. Do you understand why that is so? Well, I, I'm a diplomat. I'm a, uh, I, I'm a realistic, and the political reality is the one that tells me that there would not be a deal without a, a deal on fisheries. And I have to start from there. Any other scenario doesn't really matter. That's, that's a fact of life. There are issues on the British side which are uh, crucial for them. They, there would not be a deal without uh, uh, the, the addressing those issues on the British side. So we, we are, one needs to be pragmatic as well and say we need to have a deal on fishes. But on that, let me tell you, uh, if you look a little deeper into the file, uh, the interconnectedness, uh, I would say the interdependence even, on the fishery side is very clear. You know, the, the British fishing industry is absolutely direct towards uh, our, our markets, not anybody else's market. So uh, I, I, it's a bit, it's a bit uh, 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 you know, easy to just say this is only a, a problem for the EU. No, we know from the facts, from the, the economic facts, that um, there is a strong link between the fishing industry in Britain and our market. So there is a mutual interest in finding the deal. Again, in the last round, we started uh, at last uh, uh, a substantial discussion on fisheries. We hope it continues for the, for the fourth round. Uh, and we look forward to having a deal which will be, uh, as always, a, a compromise. But 
please don't, uh, the observers, don't underestimate the importance of this. Michel Barnier has been very clear. There would not be a deal without a number of elements, 11 playing field, a good deal on, on governance, but also a, a fisheries deal. Okay. Well, you also mentioned drought, the playing field. Uh, it strikes me at the point that the two sides are slightly talking past each other because they both claim to want the highest possible standards in the area of environment protection, uh, labor standards, and so on and so on. And yet, um, it is being seen by many as, uh, on the EU side, certainly, that with some suspicion, it's as if the UK wants to do this so-called Singapore on Thames approach and why they're not buying into the EU uh, proposal on level playing field is because they want to have the freedom to, to regulate downwards in effect. Of course, the UK would be horrified at such a suggestion uh, being imputed to them. So do you see a, a way out of that level playing field impasse? There, there is another suspicion which I want to refuse as well. Right. Uh, and that tells uh, people that we want the UK to apply uh, uh, and to be submitted to EU rules. That's not what we're asking for. They left, they left the Union. They are not supposed to, to be bound by, by our legislation. What we want them is to agree, and to agree it on the treaty, on the, on the deal, on the agreement, uh, that uh, these issues of level playing field are important. They should be, uh, they should be taken in consideration and assume uh, responsibilities on that ground, but not asking them to, uh, to give away their sovereignty and being bound by, by our rules. But you, you have to understand, you know, sometimes people say, why don't you do like Canada? Why don't you do like Japan? Well, first of all, those agreements also have level, level playing field uh, provisions. Uh, but you cannot compare let's be frank, uh, uh, pairs with apples, right? Uh, a is a close neighbor. The UK has been with us for 47 years. Uh, uh, they are separated from us by 35 kilometers of sea. Uh, that's you know, quite different from the 5,000 kilometers that separate us from Canada. You know, we, uh, you know, we import from the UK 10 times as much as we import from Canada. And, and, and trade with UK is equivalent to what we do with Canada, Japan, and Korea together. Right. So we have to understand that these are realities. And we have to look at, uh, you know, what we do with our neighbors in, in, our, in our neighborhood as well. There is... Uh, you know, the, the geographic proximity and the economic uh, interconnectedness uh, uh, is, is the basis on which we have to build this deal. And, uh, and we have to understand that these uh, kind of commitments have to be uh, uh, central to, to, to this deal. But this is not about sovereignty. We are not challenging the British sovereignty, but we don't want them to challenge ours as well. And in some of their proposals, you see uh, that they, they try to sort of not uh, fully recognize the, our capacity to decide uh, who and how people have access to our single market. Right. In the, in the, in the months and years leading up to the withdrawal agreement, the, the UK was seen even by some of its supporters, uh, the Brexit team, being rather on the back foot of being rather uh, lacking transparency, hence the issue of trust as we discussed earlier, uh, but also not almost like they weren't taking it seriously, not so well prepared in terms of documents being shared with their interlocutors and so on and so on. Do you have the feeling now though, fast forward into now May 2020, that the, the UK government operation in its broadest manifestation is rather more slick and professional and more on the front foot than on the back foot? Well, listen, in my, in my uh, already long career at the European Union, there's one thing I know is to never underestimate the British negotiator. <laughs> we are certainly not doing that. They are, uh, uh, 
terrific professionals. They are great, uh, great diplomats. Uh, they know what they're talking about, and no one in our side underestimates uh, uh, our British counterparts. So they're doing a great job for their interests, and we fully recognize that. And it's a pleasure to, to really to engage with our British colleagues because of the level of professionalism. And, uh, you know, Paul, let, let me say very, very clearly, I, I'm, you know, I remain optimistic about this negotiation, right? I think it's, it's possible to reach a deal. We were slightly disappointed in some phases, and certainly the last round. Uh, and, um, and uh, you know, uh, we don't agree with everything that has been uh, said uh, from the British side in recent uh, days. Uh, but, um, you know, if, if I take it on a more personal level, you know, my experience in, in Washington and New York in the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, you know, it gives me a lot of ammunition to, to confirm my belief that uh, a, a close relationship between the UK and the EU is absolutely vital, and not only for, for, for us and, and them, but also for, for, for the world. You know, in the world which we, you have discussed with so many of your guests here in, in this podcast, I mean, it's obvious that uh, uh, a, a close relationship is crucial for our future. And uh, we are a number of very happy people around the world, uh, uh, and not the ones that necessarily share our values or our strategic interests. They'll be very happy to see a, a full divorce between the EU and the UK. Brexit is done, but beyond Brexit, there is room, and in my view, there is a need uh, for a close relationship, and I think we can we can make it. But in any negotiation, we have ups and downs. We are now in the moment that we are preparing important meetings for June. Uh, let's see how it goes. But uh, you know, my personal assessment is that it is worth the investment because it's countries and good for the global liberal order, good for the values that we stand for. Well, let's make this my, my final question to you then, Joao. You said earlier, of course, that um, it's difficult to have substantive real discussions and negotiations in this backdrop of virtual conferencing and uh, without the face-to-face -face, uh, contact. Uh, and we're coming up, as you just said, to some very critical meetings and assessments, I understand, before the, as I understand it, before the summer on, on both sides about the state of progress. The date is looming 30th of June, on which the government on, on the UK side has decided whether not to ask for an extension or not. So far, of course, their political statements, public statements say, no way do we want to ask for an extension. There are some serious constraints, let's be clear, between now and the summer when this assessment is made and the deadline looms about how well the discussions are going and, and leading to this this uh, optimistic scenario you're sketching out at the end of the year. What are your grounds for optimism, apart from being a very professional diplomat? Well, I'm an optimist by nature. Uh, <laughs> we come from a small, small country like Portugal, and you sort of discovered the world a few centuries ago. You need to be optimistic to believe that you can make it. Uh, and I'm optimistic as an European as well, because you know, we're celebrating the, the 70 year of the, of the Schumann Declaration the other day. And uh, I had the, the, the good opportunity to co-sign with all my 27 colleagues in London a, a, an open letter to the British citizens. Yeah. And it strikes uh, how much we have achieved in the European Union in, uh, since Schumann launched this, this, this idea. So I'm, I'm, I believe we can, we can make it with the UK. So what we need for that to happen? I think we need to focus on the core issues now. I told you earlier, we've done all the clarifications, the technical work, 
even in spite of the virtual nature of our last meetings. Now we need, we need to move up a gear. And that means to really focus on the core issues. And my invitation to our British friends is, is to do exactly that. But also to be realistic. You know, uh, in some of the British positions we see, uh, you know, we want Canada, but also we want some elements that are very close to almost being a member of, of the European Union. So one needs to be realistic about what can be achieved. And, uh, and now we need tangible and parallel programs. You know, we need to rebalance the negotiation in terms of the, the issues that we cover. And we need to show uh, clear evidence of, of, of progress in the, coming, in the coming weeks. If we do that, that is, if we focus on the core issues, if we are ready to, uh, to, to, to invest and compromise, I think uh, we could have a successful fourth round and then, uh, you know, take it as they come, the, the meetings and the rendezvous of June. But I want us to also to be clear about one point. We are not obsessed with June. I think we, we have time until October, let's say mid-October, if we want ratification to take place ahead of the 1st of January. And we need to, to, to see that time, you know, horizon as the one that was to come to, to an agreement. Of course, the extension decision, which is the one that the UK has to make as a, as a, as a, as a deadline. Uh, but beyond that, there is time for us to, to, to really make it happen. But we need, to, we need to focus, we need to be realistic, and we need to, to address the core issues. Well, okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. I hope your first podcast wasn't too painful. Joao Valida Almeida, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul. Always a pleasure.